sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Robin Caleb Show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Haig. With me today, of course, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? Battling some sort of cold, but, you know, I've been dragging that since about a week. week. Yep. It's been about a week since we all flew home. Yeah, so there was a bunch of us sick in the room. Four guys uh, in one hotel room. What can you do? Um, and, uh, yeah, a lot of us. Were, well, let's we'll talk about the ETS and SBL. In a I'll few tell seconds. you what you can do. You can drink from a... Yes, YeshuaShirt.com, Yeshua or you could wear a Yeshua shirt today. That's right. Our show is brought to you in part today by YeshuaShirts.com. YeshuaShirts.com, start a conversation today. Go to YeshuaShirts.com and get yourself either a, a shirt that says Yeshua, Yeshua on it in Hebrew, and people will ask you what it means. Oh, totally, all the time. I, or, I to or, get, or get a new mug. Thank you, by the way, to Yeshua Shirts for sending the Robin Caleb Show mugs. I told people, you send us mugs, we will use them on the show. And actually, I've even thought about getting a little uh, hook set up so I can hook different mugs. And then every day at the beginning of the show, I'll take down a, a mug and fill it with coffee so that we can feature said mug. That's right. I've thought yes. this through. Send me mugs, people. Send me mugs. I like free mugs. That's that's what it's all about. Yeah, I, I gotta say before we started, uh, we were having a good chat on uh, in the chat room. The chat room was telling us uh, the the Clarks who are in the, the UK. They were telling us why they don't like haggis. I I didn't know this until today when Michael uh, Gonzalez posted it. Haggis has had a ban on haggis. Uh, I'm sorry. The U.S. Is, yeah, the U.S. has had a ban on haggis since 1971. I had no clue, but I've always been interested to uh, to try eating it. However, the Clarks say that it tastes like sawdust. So maybe someday I'll have to try it myself. What do you think, Rob? Would you try haggis? It just doesn't sound appetizing. No? For me. That's just my opinion. Interesting. All right, fine. Be like that. I don't know why my audio recorder is not uh, not working today. That's okay. We'll figure it out later. Okay. Well, enough about haggis and other things. Let's talk about, well, first of all, if you love haggis and want to tell me why, or if you have any comments whatsoever about the show or about Tor Resource Radio, give us a call, 253-465-3205. i give it to you again. It's 253-465-3205. That is the comment line for Tor Resource Radio. And... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, could be good. All right. Um, I'm thinking of other foods that I wouldn't try 
<laughs> I think the blood pudding is not kosher, right? You can't eat blood no, no, pudding. No, no, no. Yeah, that sounds no. disgusting. Uh, thank you. Know what, you know what I made la- yesterday? What? It, it it's a called like Mexican pumpkin soup. Gross. Well, check it out. I'll tell you what's in it. It gets fresh jalapenos. You dice up jalapeno peppers, onions, garlic. I'm with you so far. And you saute all that up there, and you put some, you know, stewed tomatoes, some chicken broth, and I'd already uh, prepared some chicken breast and cut that up, put that in there, and then you dice. We had a big pumpkin, and I carved it up and into little cubes. You put a bunch of cubes of pumpkin in there. That's where you lost me. You boil it up. Check it out. You boil it up, and then you you serve it you, uh, as a garnish. You dice up some avocado and some cilantro, and so you have this bowl. It's kind of orange, but it's got oh, it's got uh, pepper in it too, like green pepper. So you got this bowl, and you put a dollop of sour cream on there, and some cilantro and some avocado, and it's spicy, and it's got the tomato. It was really healing for my crud that I'm that I'm battling. Okay, I know that this show is is a religious show, so I'm not trying to uh you know, I'm not trying to turn Reli- it into- religion and cuisine are very close. I'm not, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to I'm not trying to make this into the, you know, the the food network here, uh, the food podcast. But okay, I give you the one that I made the other day. Got some shredded potatoes and was making uh was making myself some hash browns, okay? Salt, pepper, onion, garlic powder, all in there. Then I took, once I flipped it and it was nice and golden brown, I put cheese on top. And then I took Emerald City sauerkraut, which is like the best sauerkraut. It's super expensive, but the best sauerkraut you will ever have. And after I put some sour cream and salsa on top, I just loaded sauerkraut on top of it. It was like a sauerkraut pie. Oh, it was good. That's that, good. That's got good cut uh, probiotics and whatnot. For that's your... that's why I started eating sauerkraut is because I had heartburn and instead of taking heartburn medication, which my doctor said I should do, I just started eating uh, t- uh, copious amounts of sauerkraut. And now I love sauerkraut. It like turned me on to sauerkraut. Right on. And uh, and I have no heartburn. Healthy gut. You've got healthy gut. I got to tell you this. People think this I don't is hate ab- your guts. I think you got good guts, Caleb. This is this is people think I'm absolutely nuts for this. But scrambled eggs with sauerkraut is something that should be tried by all. It's delightful. Okay, let's get to it. There, there, this has been cooking with Rob and Caleb. Okay, let's see what we got going on. Okay, so well, I, you need to introduce your new friend there. Ah, uh, yes, at this year's ETS and uh, well, ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society in San Antonio, Texas, right on the Riverwalk. It was it was lovely. Uh, I was given by the the uh, Charles Spurgeon Foundation. I was given a Charles Spurgeon bobblehead. There it is. I want to hook it up so that it it uh, is hooked up to like a bell or something so that when I hit it, bing! You know what I'm saying? I think that'd be good. Uh, but yeah, so we got Charles Spurgeon hanging out on the desk with us. You know what we could? What could it be? It could be a. There could be two triggers. One could be a, and one could be a bing, like a, like if it's a, if he agrees, <laughs> if the yeah. Spurgeon bobblehead yeah. agrees, it'll be it'll be. Righto, or something like that. <laughs> if he disagrees, it'll be like eh, Spurgeon. Next. It, this this was given to me by SpurgeonCenter.com. Now I'll be honest with you. 
I don't know anything about the Spurgeon Center, but they gave me a uh, a journal to write in, and they gave me a Charles Spurgeon bobblehead. So I'm very thankful to them for that. Let's talk about the ETS and the SBL. So for those who aren't up to speed on this, the Evangelical Theological Society always has its meeting in close proximity to the Society of Biblical Literature. They run one right into the other. So the ETS usually goes first, and then the... uh, then the SBL starts the day at the morning after. So this year, for instance, the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, ended on Thursday afternoon. The SBL started on Friday morning. So they, it's like one huge conference, except for it's two separate conferences. The, S, uh, the ETS uh, has about 5,000 people that attend every year. And the SBL has about 12,000 that attend so every year. So it more than almost triples in size. Well, and the S- the SBL is also an association. They have their conference with something called the American Academy of Religions, or the AAR. The AAR is – now, granted, when you think SBL, you probably think Christian or something like that. It's not that at all. In fact, anyone who has anything to do with the Bible, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Christian, Jewish – They can be, be atheists. Atheists, yeah. They, they, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, for instance, there are some uh, – uh, what's his name? Uh, who's Ehrman, the, Bart Ehrman. Bart, yeah, Bart Ehrman is. He, uh, he, he doesn't believe in the. the he's gospels an or, but but he is like one of the major teachers of New Testament studies in the in America in academia in America. So I got my picture taken with him last year. Uh, this year uh, there was uh, some wonderful and there's wonderful scholars there and there's <laughs> there's scholars that we obviously disagree with. There's people who don't believe in that the Bible is inerrant. They see it as a piece of literature like Shakespeare or uh, you know Robert Frost or something like that. Um, they uh, there's all sorts of different uh, people. The AAR also brings a completely different element into it because the American Academy of Religions is anything from Buddhist, Hindu, Taoism, uh, you name it, uh, they're there. So you got a swath of various And you people. have the whole LGBT kind of All represented, movement yes. Represented in terms of trying to read the Bible from an LGBT perspective. Correct. Or, yeah. uh, gender studies, uh, colonialism, all these kinds of uh, popular lenses of social criticism and, and social justice have their own voice in this world. So it's, it's not a, it's not like a religious retreat or convention Now, in terms of like something that would, is there for us to be edified spiritually by rather it's, it almost feels, I don't know. Did you ever feel like it was hostile? I don't know that I ever felt hostility, spiritual hostility. Yeah. But never like, I never felt like I was, physically in danger. That's one of the reasons I really enjoy the SBL and the ETS is because when you go there, even if you disagree with people, people are held to a higher standard for the most part. There, There's, you know, we'll talk about what scholarship is deal- later. Right. In, in terms of dealing with, uh, on some of the basic things, dealing with texts in the original languages, right? I mean, if, that's, that's going to be a big one. People are going to say, look, you know, general rule here is if you're going to present an exegetical kind of paper and you haven't done your duty dealing with the text in the original languages, they're going to say, you know, 
you got to do that first. There's oh, well, you, you will certainly be uh, chewed up and spit out <laughs> by uh, your peers if you present something. This happened last year. We were in Atlanta last year, and uh, the, one of the last that you were at that session with me with uh, Jody Magnus. And there was one gentleman who was a scholar, Jody Magnus. She's a uh, archaeologist. There's, mm-hmm. and she had written more of a scholarly paper. And at the beginning of it, she said, I, you know, I'm a little fearful to even present this because I'm up here with a bunch of scholars. I'm not a scholar. I'm an archaeologist. And then there was, this well, other... and she wasn't a new Testament scholar because it had yeah. to do with historical Jesus kind of thing. Yes. And uh, there was another guy up there who was trying to bring in all these, all these archaeological facts. And, <laughs> As a response, Jody Magnus just got up and basically said, "I'm sorry, but everything that he has said is is completely wrong. That's not you right. Can't do that. <laughs> you can't you can't say this, and this is why." And she just obli- everybody kind of felt bad for the guy because he just got obliterated by one of the leading archaeologists uh, in her field, and uh, everybody knew it. So you you can't you can't get away with a lot there. And I think this is one reason that messianics uh, messianic scholars, quote unquote messianic scholars, uh, a lot of the time. Uh, are not going to be attending the I ETS. Even, Michael Gonzalez even shared. He said he says I I he was at a session and they said they just wrote you know a guy gave a paper and there were some respondents and he said this guy basically got roasted. And he says wow that's what happens here. I remember it was like yeah that can happen and not, not every session but yeah you can see people get you know I saw it too. I saw I went to see a paper. A lady gave a paper and the guy was like. Oh boy, I, I man, I would not want to be her. She's got to go. He basically sent her back to the library <laughs> to, to, to go back to your studies. You know, work a little harder on this. And um, that's the, but that's the point is that you got. But exactly, you learn from that. I mean, you should, you should take that as a learning opportunity. If you take it as, oh, pity party, you're never going to produce anything, right? So the idea is, okay, what. What is the construct? And people generally, I've never seen anybody be mean spirited. I've seen, but I've seen very pointed and critical uh, uh, responses and feedback that would have been difficult to to take. Oh, yeah. But we need that. We need to have teachers that help shape our, our thinking and challenge us. You know, it's not, in other words, here's another way to put it. Going presented at SBL is not to just have a bunch of people go, Amen. Yes. It just to, it's not like you have an audience full of yes, man. As a matter of fact, most of the time, I think when people give a paper, they're ready that there's probably going to be a lot of people there that are going to challenge their paper. But, sure. but, they, but they know that in advance. And so they try to, given that situation, that forum, to, and that's, that's I know my approach, that's, uh, Tim Haig, your father's approach is to go there and say, look, I'm going to present what I'm studying um, and then hope to get feedback or encouragement, you know. Well, OK, so let's let's run this down a little bit. So the ETS was a little bit different because it was just uh, at the ETS this year. It was Rob, my father, Tim Haig. Gary Springer, our web admin, or he's he's the one who's basically uh, running our chat room right now. Thank you, by the way, to Gary for running our chat room. And uh, he. <laughs> He's uh, he also heads up all of our classes on counseling and spiritual uh, spiritual care and those kind of things. Uh, so uh, Gary was with us as well as he is every year. Michael Gonzalez, our art director, uh, was in Texas visiting his family until the SBL, so he missed out on the ETS. And I think uh, I don't know next year we will be in uh, in Rhode Island and in uh, Boston 
for the ETS will be in Rhode Island and uh, the SBL will be in Boston. We'll see if uh, Gonzalez is going to come to both of, both of them with us. It's a whirlwind, no matter what. But um, and then uh, we had one of our one of our students come for the SBL as well. So. Uh, our, one of our students and uh, uh, someone who's normally in the chat room, Dennis. Actually, I think he's in the chat room right now. Dennis was with us for the uh, uh, SBL as well, and uh, that was great. So uh, during the ETS, the ETS had a theme this year. It has a theme every year. This year it was on the Trinity. So there was a lot. Now, not every paper is going to be on the Trinity when they have a theme, but uh, a, a significant focus will be the Trinity. Um, there were some really, really good papers, I thought, on, on uh, Trinitarian doctrine, kind of where we are today as opposed to the, the fluctuation and the differences that we've seen within Trinitarian studies. Uh, Dr. Wesley Hill was there. Uh, he defended uh, his views on the Trinity in one panel session. Uh, there were other great scholars there that, uh, that were uh, amazing to see. We'll talk about that in a second. On one of the nights, we had a Torah Resource Institute meetup, meet and greet, and I apologize to all the people who attempted to get a hold of us. My email, my Torah resource email was down. I tried to tell everybody that they need to email me on my personal email. There was probably three or four families that wanted to come that didn't end up getting to come because they didn't see the message about my email. So I apologize to them. But uh, point being that we did have uh, uh, several people come down to meet us and have dinner with us. That was great. We got to meet Lois Morgan. She's in the chat room right now. And uh, obviously we... I knew, knew Lois from being in, uh, well, from many different places, but mainly from being in Greek together. We uh, we took Greek together. So it was nice to meet her face-to-face. And uh, there were some other people, just a really great time of, of uh, breaking bread together, eating, and, and those sort of things. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there were a couple of standout sessions in my mind at the ETS this year. Uh, there was one uh, by John Piper. John Piper presented on his new book, A P- Peculiar Glory. And man, what a dynamite session. Crossway. That was almost, that was really like a sermon. It so was. You think? Yes, it was. It was a sermon and a plug for his book at the same time. It was. It, good. It, but uh, Crossway actually uh, hosted a breakfast. So they gave us a free breakfast. And then we sat and listened to Dr. Piper uh, uh, talk about his new book uh, for about 45 minutes, which I, ju- I thought it was an excellent sermon it, it was really good what'd you think i thought it was great yeah uh there was another uh, another group that we saw i missed the last the last session uh with averbeck with dr richard averbeck unfortunately because i heard that that was the best one in the session but uh it was on um suzerain vassal or hittite trees a- rather yeah, ancient near eastern covenants and how how do we understand can we read Deuteronomy, for example, or the Torah generally, and how does our understanding of covenants from other cultures in the ancient Near East, um, in terms of form, how they're structured, and does that help us date, you know, the ideas of when were, when were other people organizing ideas along the same way as Deuteronomy? And you, you had uh, people, different views, that if you took one scholar's view, you would think a late exodus— if you would have taken another scholar's view, early Exodus. So it's not that anybody came and uh, had, they were all saying the same voice. It seemed like some of the scholars, and this is even in the ETS, are not really uh, anchored in a specific chronology. Would you agree with that, Caleb? 
It's, well, it's, okay, yes, I would, but I would say that the majority of scholars, because of Woods, Doctor Woods' work uh, in terms of an exodus, I, I think that, and, and others' work, I think a lot of them are anchored in a in a fourteen hundreds exodus. Now, of course, Kitchen, Kenneth, Doctor Kenneth Kitchen, and uh, the person who presented the paper that we saw together on uh, Hittite treaties of the fourteenth fifteenth uh, century BCE, uh, I think that uh, there's a I think it's Johnston. Yeah, John, Johnson. Uh, and I think he's at Dallas. I think I there's I think much. there's a move towards or <laughs> you know the original view was 1200s and that's what Kitchen still holds to. I think there are scholars who hold to that. Um, there are other scholars who hold to uh, I think the majority though. I would say the majority of scholars today are holding to a 14th uh, 1400s 15th century BCE exodus from Egypt. If but, they believe there was if they believe there was an exodus. There's some scholars out there that say it's all a myth. Yes. So Correct. Um, yeah, so the ETS, that was essentially the ETS. Uh, Gary says that he went to a wonderful paper on um, Ego Ami and Yodhe Vave. I am, that is, and, uh, and Yodhe Vave. Um, any other standouts from the ETS, Rob? Um, for me, yes. In, in terms of uh, Greek, I went to a some papers on uh, Koine Greek that were excellent. And they're, that's kind of the nerd thing, you know. Like I know you called them the Masora, the nerds for the SBL. Uh, this is the nerd. And they even, one of the presenters, because it was a room and it was packed and there was standing room only in the back. And they're like, wow, this is like the nerd section of ETS and we're totally packed out. Um, concerning the nature of the Greek verb, the aspect of the Greek verb is part of that, um, an area that I've been studying lately. So trying to keep my pulse on the kind of where is the cutting edge in terms of New Testament Greek, because as a Greek instructor, I want to be informed. But also just as a student of the Greek scriptures, this student, uh, trying to be a, a good student of understanding Jewish Greek. And when I say Jewish Greek, I mean all the Greek used by Jews in the Second Temple period, whether it's for the Septuagint or the Apostolic writings. There are a couple hundred years of Jewish uh, use of the Greek language, where it's basically the main language of a lot of Jewish literature, that Jewish communities today don't really, they've kind of written off this whole history of of Jewish culture because it's, you know, it's become like, oh, Greek, you know. Uh, but in fact, it's an important uh, part and chapter of, of Jewish history. And, of course, we have Scripture given in that language, in the, the Gospels and the Epistles, etc. So uh, one of the things that happened is uh, I was in a session. I'm not even going to talk really about what, the, what my new thesis is, but uh, I was in a session, heard something. I was in there with Rob. The guy started by referencing a different scholar, and uh, I pretty much zoned out for the rest of his lecture. I don't even know really what his lecture was about because he said one thing, and I started thinking, and for like the next 25 minutes— that's all I did was think about this one train of thought. And so I decided to change my thesis topic. I uh, asked my father, who's the president of the school, and I asked my thesis advisor, which is Rob Van Hoff, uh, if I could change my thesis topic. They agreed that I could. And uh, so the only thing that I will say is that uh, it was really a, a very uh, – you know, I was, I was kind of excited about my old thesis topic, but, man, this really fell right into place. Uh, I, uh, the one thing I will say about my the, my new thesis topic is that I will be having to interact with and refute 
a lot of the claims in a very well-written book called Jesus in the Last Supper, which is written by Brant Petrie, a, uh, a doctor at Notre Dame in New Testament uh, studies and Jesus studies. Uh, he is a Roman Catholic. And so uh, a, a significant part of my uh, thesis will be having to challenge and uh, essentially say that Dr. Petrie is wrong in his assessment. Um, at the SBL, I not only bought his book, but right after I bought his book, I was uh, I saw him walking Dr. Petrie. I looked. At, I was looking at the back cover, and uh, there's a picture of him there. And uh, <laughs> I looked up, and there he is standing in front of me, which was uh, very nice. And he's not, you know, he's probably I would say he's Rob's age. And uh, so I asked him if he'd sign the book for me and if I could get a picture with him, which he did. And then uh, that night we had dinner with Dr. Chris Tilling. Those of you who listen to this show know who Dr. Chris Tilling is. We, uh, we've talked about him. We interviewed him recently back in July uh, when, uh, for his book, Paul's Divine Christology, a dynamite book, just really good. Um, and it was a huge pleasure not only to be able to meet him. Man, that guy is so cool. He's just down to earth. He's uh, into to chess. He, uh, you know, he's easy to talk to. I I don't know if he is, I don't know if he's just being nice or if he's really, you know, like, I can't tell if he, yeah, he's just so nice. What a, what a great guy. Anyway, uh, so he informed me that he was actually having breakfast the next morning with Dr. Petrie and another Roman Catholic named Dr. Michael Barber. And he invited me to go to breakfast with them, which I did. And so I was able to sit down and uh, chat a little bit with Dr. Petrie the man I will not only be interacting with, but be attempting to refute. Um, and for some reason, when I posted uh, this picture of uh, Dr. Petrie's book on my Facebook page and, and uh, started kind of talking about uh, wanting to refute him, for some reason, people have all of a sudden thought that I'm cozying up now or I'm sympathetic to Roman Catholicism. Uh, Maureen, the lady who uh, has tried to challenge us on Hislop's book, Said, uh, just left a, a very backhanded comment saying, well, I can see why you are so against Hislop now, uh, suggesting in some way that I'm a uh, sympathetic to the, <laughs> to the Roman Catholics. Uh, <laughs> totally lacking in taste. And obviously, uh, Marine uh, is not reading uh, or is not understanding what people are writing uh, because that's not at all, you know, I'm, I'm attempting to refute Petrie, not to agree with him, but to show how he is wrong. Um, anyway, right. so and, I, and I'm so grateful we live in a world, particularly in a country, that isn't afraid of other ideas, but can actually say, "Okay, I'll, I'll hear your idea, but I'm going to challenge it." Yeah, rather than you know, and that's 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 one of the values of SBL. Well, here's the here's the thing, and this is really where I'm going with this: is that, you know, uh, I completely agree with Doctor Tilling on his on his uh, book on Paul's divine Christology. You know, he's uh, just a blessed brother in the Lord. And, uh, you know, I see Dr. Petrie, uh, his work that he's doing, I disagree with it, but man, you can tell that he is a, an excellent writer. He writes in a way where your average person who's not a scholar will be able to pick up the book, read it, and totally understand what he's saying. And he lays it out in an exciting way. He also writes in a way that if you're a scholar— 
Granted, I wish that he would have put original Greek and Hebrew into his text, which he didn't. He transliterated everything, but that might have been Erdman's uh, uh, doing and not his when they edited the book. Editorial, yeah. Yeah. But uh, you can see how he is, he hits a wide net of people. You know, if you're a scholar, you know exactly what he's talking about. You can read his book and, and you can see he's done his work. You know, he's referencing really good scholars, Dunn, E.P. Sanders, who I met, by the way, at the SBL, um, uh, you know, N.T. Wright, he's, you know, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, all these guys, he's, he's interacting with all these guys. And uh, at the same time, I can sit and have breakfast with him, we can have a great time and uh, totally disagree. But the reason that we can do that is because we both hold scholarship to, I think, a high standard. We disagree with each other, but we both have this idea of what good scholarship looks like and what good scholarship is. And then I come home and I jump on Facebook or wherever and I look in my emails and it's all these messianic teachers and leaders who uh, don't have the same standard of scholarship, who are... Uh, using Hebrew word pictures and uh, all of Tav and all this kind of stuff. And it's like all of a sudden I'm back in the trash heap. It's, you know, I, I felt almost cleansed when I when I was at the ETS and SBL just from the amount of good scholarship that is around you. Now, granted, there are people that aren't being held to that same standard. Um, we'll talk about that in a few seconds. But uh, Caleb. Yes. This is all, I don't know, maybe you're going, this is a good segue into our Oxford, Oxford Dictionary. Oh, okay. Word of the year. Okay. Don't you think? Sure. I got And I got something else after that, too. Uh, okay. Rob shared this with me this morning. I got a sound clip of it. He didn't realize that there was a sound clip. This is only 29 seconds long. I did a little bit of editing. Uh, I think this is more of a political term than anything else. However, listen for yourself to what the Oxford Dictionary has uh, posted as the word of, t- of the year 2016. Post-truth. British politics was dominated this year by the Brexit referendum. In America, it was the presidential election. Both campaigns caused spikes in the usage of the phrase post-truth. That is, when objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. The truth, lamented one British newspaper commentator recently, has become so devalued that what was once the gold standard of political debate is a worthless currency. (laughs) Post-truth. In right. other words, if it doesn't feel right, this is how I'm taking what he just said. If it doesn't feel right, it can't be right. So that basically it's taken as an adjective, as he says, defined as relating to or denoting circumstances. So it's a situation in which objective fa- facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So it has to do with the shaping of public opinion. I was talking about this with my wife, and she's like, in other words, manipulation. And here was my concern. If if appeals to emotion are going to shift people or guide people in their worldview and in their decisions they make rather than objective fact, that's really distressing. But I, I was thinking of this. I could see two sides of it. On one hand, even with like the Olive Tov Bibles and the – what a, you know, word pictures and all this kind of stuff where we see people that actually believe that. I can understand why I understand that it's powerful, even in religious spheres, also in political uh, 
spheres. But on the flip side, I'm like, aren't people smarter? Aren't your, isn't your average person smarter than that though? To then to take your basic headline, maybe they encounter on Facebook at no, face not. value. Are they, no. are people really idiots yes. and they yes. can't think for themselves? Yes. Yes. I think yes. So, so okay. Well then, then post truth basically means humans are stupid and have not learned how to dis- discern a fact from fiction. Yeah. Well, I think there's multiple factors. I think that people think that, that you know, but I think that a, a lot of the younger generation is swayed not by truth, but what a feeling and a lot of feeling comes from what they're being told by people who in, in, uh, in you know, famous people, even though famous people really have n- no better handle on politics than they do or whatever it may be. And this is this is really what I think post-truth is speaking to is political issues. Yeah. yeah. Um. But, you know, I, I think the people who – I think, to be honest with you – okay, here we go. <clears throat> let's The head goes off. Let's really talk about let, – let's talk about something that's really going to tick a lot of people off. I'm sorry, but I think that this has to do with public schooling. I it, it baffles my mind why people want to send their children to public school. I understand the need for it, okay? I just don't understand – hang on just a sec – delete this block. I just don't understand why most people would send their kids to public school. And what I mean by that is this. I talk to my friends and they're like, oh, uh, you know, I can't believe that this lady pulled out, you know, she's got three kids and I'm in line behind her at the Safeway and all of a sudden she pulls out her food stamp card. Like, I can't believe that this lady is, you know, on food stamps and she's pregnant again and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So there's this down view of like food stamps or being on any kind of welfare system. But the United States public school is a welfare system. Yeah, my sister has taught for 30 plus years. And I think her school now, she's taught at a number of elementaries. Uh, It's like 80 plus percent reduced what they call free and reduced lunch. Like basically they provide breakfast and lunch for these kids, which is – is needed because the kids aren't are they're not getting fed properly at home. You know, yeah. the the parents the parents aren't reading to them. So the kids come and they're like the parents are saying here hand, you know hand off my kid to you and you raise it for us. You know, that's it's tough. Tough. But that's my point is that like <laughs> you're not going to like you won't take food stamps but at the same time you're going to put your kid in public education which we know is not it's not a, you know, pu- I'm sorry, but public education is not like the gold standard. But people, for some reason in the United States, think that it is. And how are you supposed to think that you're going to drop your kids off at a public school and they're not going to be influenced by the kids around them? It makes no sense to me. Like, okay, I understand, like, I understand a little bit the parents who are like, I'm going to drop copious amounts of money because I don't have the ability to teach my children. I'm going to drop money and I'm going to put them into a private school that is very specific, you know, religious, blah, blah. I get that. And I, I even get public schools for single mothers 
who can't afford anything else and don't have a choice or single fathers or, you know, that's what public schooling is for, is for people who don't have the ability to actually teach their own children or to put them into an institution that is uh, that is, you know, a, a very well paid for school that reflects their values. Their yeah, exactly. Values exactly. The, yeah. But basically, you know. And the like, I saw uh, the reason I really started thinking about this is because my son said, "Why, Dad? Why don't I go to public school?" And I wasn't thinking. And this is going to offend people, I know, but uh, I said, "Because, son, we're not really poor, and we have the ability to teach you." Because the first thing I thought of is welfare. I mean, why would I send my son to public school? Anyway. I think that this comes down to a religious, uh, a religious issue, too. One of the things that public school is not doing for our children today is teaching them how to think and how to ask good questions. And this is one reason that you have post-truth. Well, yeah, one of the, one of the Babylonian bee, Babylon Bee's funny headlines was it showed a girl like with a math book like daydreaming. It was like feelings now acceptable answers to math problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the the idea is, and we kids, you know, I, I have my own cell phone. You know, I know what it's like. I love to play words with friends. You know, all this kind of stuff. It's easy to get in your own little world, right? Where you're looking at the news that you want to look at. You're looking at the Facebook you want to look at. You're following the tweets that you want to. It's all. It brings the the interests and whims of the owner of the phone, the smartphone or the computer, they get what they want inst- almost instantaneously. And what that creates a whole new kind of self, a self that that expects to get what it wants instantaneously in terms of information or entertainment. And that is super, super scary because uh, it's I think it's great that we have the Internet, but it's I'd say most of it is we got to be careful for the dumpster diving. I'm not going to say most of it. I don't I, I don't know. I just know that let's okay, there, let's let's also be honest. There there are people who have to send their kids to there are situations where public school is is the only option. There are single mothers who don't have a better option. And for for those single mothers, I my heart breaks for you and you know, I understand. I get it. So I'm not saying that that there's absolutely no situation that a person uh, you know, I'm not throwing everyone out. What I'm saying is when you have two parents and the parents decide they're going to send their kids to public school because one, because they want more money. And so, you know, both parents are going to work. How does that make any sense? You know, my I would live in a studio apartment with my family before my kids would go to we, we had public someone school. Said, well, someone told Jenny once, I don't have the – it was a, a double working – family that owns like property and stuff like this, like outside of their house, they own property, they're going to build a house. Uh, we don't have the luxury of homeschooling our kids. And my wife was just like biting her lip. Cause she's like luxury. Do you think a, do you look at our life and see luxury? <laughs> no, it's a, it's, it's a choice and it, and it costs, you know, it's saying no to other things like, you know, trips to Disneyland twice a year. Oh wait, that hits home. Thanks. No, Thanks. I'm, kidding. Yes. <laughs> I'm kidding, Caleb. <laughs> Don't get me started. No, but no. but check this out. You send your kid to, you send your kid to public school and now what are you being what are they being taught? They're being taught things that are absolutely opposed to the the word of God. You know, now 
I mean, take take evolution out of it. Let's say that you're an old earther. Okay, there there are believers who who believe in an old earth. Okay, so let's say that you believe in evolution. So you don't mind that their child's being taught evolution. What about LGBT? Uh, you know, uh, uh, those those kind of issues, transgender issues, uh, being told that all this is natural and it's all right, um, or or even even promiscuity. You know, the idea that your child is going to get this idea that it's okay just to fly through uh, various sexual partners and things like this. I, I, I just don't, I don't understand how uh, believers who have a good family structure, two parents in the home uh, and whatnot, if you're going to work two jobs, if, if both parents are going to work jobs, then one of those jobs in my mind should be to send them to uh, a, a school that is, I don't know, I think homeschooling is the answer. I don't think that there's, you know, I think there's ways that people can homeschool and should homeschool. Okay, so this is uh, this Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year post-truth. And, you know, Caleb, maybe we live in a, we're we're broadcasting our Robin Caleb show and all our Torah resource material into a a post-truth world. But for us, we know the truth. The truth is Yeshua. Yeshua says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not a prop. It's not a, the truth is not an intellectual proposition. The truth is a person. Exactly. And to be in him is to have shalom with God. All right. So if you want to yell at us now about uh, our views on schooling and homeschooling, give us a call 253-465-3205. That's just a uh, comment line. Let's move on. So the whole reason that I brought up uh, the idea, what what was I talking about? Um, oh, yeah. So this cleansing, I felt cleansed after the ETS and SBL. I come home and I posted this thing. This is this is what I posted. I, I put a uh, I put up a, a comment that said this sums up my thoughts on the Messianic slash Hebrew roots folks who are giving up on sola scriptura and accepting rabbinic writings as divinely sanctioned. The post had a picture of Dr. James White, and the uh, and the quote from James White was once the highest view of scripture is abandoned by any the- theologian group, denomination, or church, the downhill slide in both its theology and practice is inevitable. Now, there was somebody who posted and said, um, yes, but, uh, you know, once you give up on on uh, keeping Torah, the downhill slide into uh, Christian Gnosticism is inevitable, blah, blah, blah. And so I wrote back uh, and I challenged that saying, well, because I, once again, I, I have this problem with people who think that Christians, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians have given up on Torah. They don't call it Torah. I get that. But if you say God's instruction, which is Torah, or if you say something like the word of God, the entire word of God, is the entire word of God, uh, you know, meant for, for uh, believers, they would say, of course it is. And we see a huge amount of this within uh, Christians like Dr. James White and others, Dr. John Piper, who— John Piper, st- yeah, good point. —strongly oppose the idea that we be under the law. I'm putting quote marks for those who can't see me. Under the law. You know, how dare we go 
under the law. I get it. Okay. But at the same time, these men are living out a life of Torah, whether they want to admit it or not. They're doing that through loving their neighbor as themselves. They're guiding people uh, to the faith. They are in the faith and to the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. And they are living these righteous lives. And whether they want to admit it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, it's this is what Torah is. Now, granted, they have given up on things that are very important, such as uh, the Sabbath, the kosher laws, and the festivals. These are all very important things. But what as believers, as messianics, have we given up on? Have we given up on certain forms of loving our neighbor as ourselves? Have we given up on slander? Have we get, These kind of things. Are they more important? So this is kind of the beef that I have with, with messianics getting down on uh, on Christians, so I wrote this, and then somebody else right. responded, and this is this is the uh, this is the response that I got, and I want to respond directly to this comment. He says, "I'm having a hard time understanding where you're coming from. On the one hand, you are heavy-handed on messianics, yet on the other, uh, appear to be flaccid toward Christians, past and present. I think that Bible believers, whether you're a messianic, whether you're a messian uh, Hebrew roots, whether you're a Christian." Call yourself what you want. If you're a Bible believer and a, a believer in the Messiah Yeshua and that the, the Messiah has died for you and your life is being sanctified through the Holy Spirit, guess what? I don't care what label you have. So, But I, I am against this idea that now that I'm in the Messianic movement, I have the truth and the Christians are all, they don't get it. They're off in la-la land. He goes on, even in this post, it seems to be strangely woven mixed, uh, a strangely woven mix that is hard to settle on conclusion, stating that messianics are wrongly elevating rabbinic writings, yet using a reformed doctrinal term sola scriptura. Okay, I once again, I think that the doctrines, the five solas were not doctrines of the reformers. They were doctrines that were in the Bible. They were biblical doctrines. All the reformers did was give them a new name. Sola Scriptura, Scola, Sola Fide, Sola De Gratia, right? Okay, so the, they gave them a new name, but the, the, we can clearly see them within the writings of Paul and within the writings of the Tanakh. He goes on, the other statement, elevating Christians as having a higher view of Torah, yet disparaging Messianics. Okay, and this is where it comes down to. I want to talk specifically to this issue. Yes, I do disparage Messianics, and I do disparage Hebrew roots over Christianity, and I'll tell you why. Because I can go to a place like the ETS and SBL and realize that these people are living out Torah, whether they call it that or not. It's it, they're, they're not calling it, you know, the terms might be different, but they have still put a high, high value on the study of the Word and, and, on, right. and on scholarship. Exactly. They, and they're willing and they're willing to have a society where people who are in the labor of the word get up and present difficult ideas and yeah. sometimes controversial ideas in a in a room full of equally or sometimes more, in my case, more educated peers who are willing to hear it out and then give a response in a public forum. That's peer review. What we see in the Messianic world or in the Hebrew roots, there's a bunch of yes groups. Completely different. There's a, there, there's, a, there's a focus on, on trying to find the truth and wrestling honestly, honestly, with the text and with the facts. 
What I see in Messianic and Hebrew roots faith is people wrestling or not even wrestling. They are pushing an agenda that is not based on fact and truth a right. lot of it's, the time. They are post-truth. They, yeah. they are, they're, they're emotional, sensationalist, um, and even into the weird superstitious, you know, the mystical, you know, the word pictures and the et and the gematria and the Metatron and all this kind of stuff is like, come on. It's, it's a completely different perception of what using your God-given intellect uh, is meant for in, in the ETS world. You go to the ETS world and you're like, wow, the people actually know the languages of the Bible and are talking intelligently about it. You go to some of these other things and they're just abusing scripture. They know just enough language to be dangerous and they're, they surround themselves with yes people. Yeah. Completely different social worlds. I would, well, I'll go to the ETS first every day. Well, and the other thing is, is that guess what? Since I'm lumped in most of the time with Messianics, and I've done that probably myself, that's fine. But since I'm lumped in with Messianics, I feel like I can be a little bit harder on the idea on, on Messianic Judaism or on Messianics in general. Because, because I don't... Because, right. In other words, we're not the yes men. Yeah. Exactly. We're not going to. We're, we're bringing. It's actually for those who have ears to hear. We're actually bringing a valuable cultural uh, uh, scholarship measure, measure or standard from the ETS and SBL, and bringing it into the world of quote messianic and Hebrew roots, et cetera, and insisting on nothing less. There's there's one more comment that this person says. He says, you really think that we have a debt of gratitude to Catholicism, whether we like it or not. I Now, I've written this. I have written this in a uh, uh, a paper that can be found on TorahResource.com in the articles section called Why I'm Leaving the Messianic Movement. Uh, it, the title was specifically meant to grab, sh- you know, be a shocker, uh, shock title. I did that on purpose, and I, I start the entire article by talking about shock value within the Messianic movement. Um, but I say that uh, whether we like it or not, the Reformers came out of Catholicism. If you look at people like Luther, like Calvin, like Tyndale, all these guys, all of them were part of the Catholic Church, were bishops or priests or whatever in the Catholic Church, came out of the Catholic Church and pushed against the Catholic Church. So do we have a debt? Of, of gratitude to the Catholic Church. Yes, we do, whether we want to believe it or not. And he says, but when did we start to think that all thought started with Catholic Hellenists? Was Yeshua so misunderstood before that new doctrines needed to be made to understand it? The only need was from a categoric rejection of anything Jewish and therefore created a need for Catholic doctrines and re- reforms. Guess what? If you have an English Bible anywhere in your house, you can thank the Catholic Church for it. The Catholic Church is what Tyndale and what Wycliffe, Wycliffe, however you want to say it, they were raised in the Catholic Church. They worked in the Catholic Church. They were educated by the Catholic Church. They came out of it, and that's how you have your Here's English Bible today. Here's an important point, Caleb. It's right on. But the same institution, it's like God working through an institution in spite of itself. Because what it does, it's, it shows, back to the, the Scripture, Sola Scriptura, the Word of God itself is the sword. 
Yes. These men, by the by the power of the Holy Spirit, these men were basically had to put their life on the line because of the conviction in their heart based on their study of the scriptures, in spite of the institution that educated them to be able to read the languages. That's the beauty. That's that's the core issue of how God's word infiltrates fallen, depraved humanity and like he says in Isaiah 55, my word will not return into me void, is because it's sharper than the, any two-edged sword, as it says in Hebrews 4, 12, and following. That, that, is, that, is, that is why we have to have a high view of Scripture. That is why sola scriptura is so important, because it's, it's not a man's creation. And it affects hearts. It changes hearts. We're not promoting Catholicism. We're not promoting any institution of man. We're promoting the Word of God, the 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 um, good stewardship of the scholarship pertaining to its languages, to the history, the cultural aspects, the exegesis, and it's not an easy task. We have ancient Hebrew. We have ancient Aramaic. We have ancient Greek. We have multiple different language worlds. We have a, uh, everywhere from... Babylon to Egypt to to Rome over centuries, and then we have a whole two thousand years of interpretive history. Well, you know what? Yeshua is still waiting. Yeshua is tarrying, and as long as he's tarrying, he's going to equip his people. He's going to draw people. He's going to equip his body with teachers, with preachers, and it's always going to be a plurality of leadership because any one person is fallible. Any one person left to their own with just a bunch of yes people around them is going to be corrupted. We have to be disciplined. We have to be shaped through interacting with other scholars, with peers who might not see eye to eye on every nuance of theology, but are still committed to the basic knowledge facts. That is language, history, you know, do you, do you have a basic orientation of what you're even talking about? And if you do, and those are merited, merit-based, you get those because you've done the hard work. You've done the hard work, and that allows you into the conversation of people. That's how a person who's like me, who's not Jewish at all, I can give a paper to the Masora where we've got the, the chair is a emeritus professor at Jewish Theological Seminary, and... Um, interact about something that has to do with the scripture, how it was preserved by Jewish scribes in the Middle, middle Ages, and it has nothing to do with with uh, religion, however you want to frame that. It has to do with we're all interested in studying uh, something that's important to us, and we're all wanting to learn from each other. And that's important that we have a, a little space in our world for that kind of dialogue. Well, the other thing is, is that whether or not I mean, look, I, I'm not promoting Catholic doctrine, but what I'm saying is, is that the Lord used the Catholic Church to, ri- to make the Re- Reformation rise out of the Catholic Church. And for at the very least, we have the Catholic Church in some way to thank, and God using the Catholic Church, we have uh, to thank for the Reformation happening, which brought tons of biblical truth into our theology. Okay, so I want to move on now. I want to talk So real... sola scriptura is why Yeshua says it is written. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's why he can say it is written to the to uh, S A Tan and <laughs> and say it oh. is written this. And he can quote the greatest commandment. He says it is written, Hear O Israel, or the Apostle Paul can say it is written, or Kepha Peter at Acts two says the prophet says or I mean that's it. That's why John the Baptist says of a voice crying in the wilderness. It's because scripture has a high value. And we have to I, I'm totally on board with Dr. James White on that, and that's so important. Yeah. Um Okay, so uh, the last thing that we should mention about the SBL, which we haven't really talked a lot about the SBL, but uh, the one thing that we should say about the SBL is that both my father and uh, Tim Hag and uh, Rob Van Hoff were able to present papers in the Masora section, which we've already kind of touched on. You can find both these lectures now. Now, I'm not going to lie to you, they are super heady. Um, I, I went to both of the lectures. I videotaped both lectures. Uh, with Rob's, I got in there. I know a little bit about the Missouri. I've taken the uh, introduction to the Missouri at Torah Resource Institute. Um, I'll admit, I was pretty much lost until about his last minute and a half. <laughs> and then I kind of wrapped it all together. And I was like, oh, now I get what he's talking about. Um, but I, not that I'm the gold standard by any stretch of the imagination. I'm sure most of our listeners would probably be able to listen to it and understand right away. Um, but I was, I was having a, a difficult time. Um, because he's talking about uh, the Masoretic uh, Tikkunese, or no, I'm sorry. Uh, well, the Masoretic Notes and Kare Kativ, and basically uh, trying to take a, a different understanding of that. If you don't know what I just said, uh, then you'll probably be lost as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was very specific. It was, uh, but he did well, and it seemed like the the room really, really. Uh, globbed onto what he was saying and really enjoyed his lecture. So that was good. Uh, my father also gave a uh, a paper. Tim his, Grave, great paper. Yeah, great it, paper. it was very good. V- very well received by by everyone in the room. Uh, and, and, the, and we're not doing this. Here's the thing. Both Tim and myself beforehand, we're, we're bouncing. We'll, in the weeks leading up to this, we get on Skype and we bounce our thoughts off each on each other to try to hear. And well, all the time we're, we're praying for each other and we're realizing, you know, we're coming into this to learn. You know, if we if we hit it and, and we get a we get a we hit a base run out of it, then great. That's awesome. But yeah. we come understanding that we're here primarily to learn how to appreciate how the scriptures were transmitted and how the scribes went about it and how the rabbis tell midrash about that store uh, about that and that that seems it matters you know what i mean it seems like you know t- to some people it's like well, well who cares why is that important and and i can understand why people say well how come you're not giving a presentation on a, a one torah uh reading of paul's epistle to the galatians for example you know and maybe someday lord willing that will be something uh, that will be the right time. But it seems like right now the Lord has put us in a situation where we are contributing to a discussion that has to do with how you know, the uh, medieval Jewish scribes were preserving the Hebrew Bible. And um, both, even though they're very different in what we focused on between Tim Hague's and my presentation, both were, were well-received. And we're not doing that to give ourselves a pat on the back, but because we care about it and we, um, we, we 
value good history. We value understanding things accurately rather than myths and fables. Yeah, if you would like to uh, see bo- either my father, Tim Heggs, uh, or uh, Rob Van Hoff's lectures, go to vimeo.com backslash Torah Resource. They're currently the top two videos on that site. Um, and yeah, they, uh, I encourage you to do so. I think that we should mention this. Uh, there was one other thing that was interesting, both about the ETS and the SBL. That is, is that I was sitting in a lecture first day at the ETS, and someone put their hand on my shoulder, and I looked over, and there was a completely bald man. And he said, hi, my name is Nehemia Gordon. And I said, hi, Nehemia Gordon, I'm Caleb Hag. And uh, we actually had, uh, oh, somebody's saying we should talk about dinner with Tilling. Uh, we'll do that in a second. Uh, do people have access to Rob's handout? I helped, it helped a lot. We will make that available uh, on Tor Resource in the uh, in the article section as soon as uh, as soon as or people could just email. Can we put a thing on the Vimeo? Just say email Rob. Sure. If you want it. Sure, sure. Then I'll just email it to him. Plus, uh, then that'll help me be in touch with people who are interested. Uh, interested. Yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> you know we had a we had an interesting uh, time talking to Nehemia Gordon. Uh, he walked with us from one of the sessions back to the accordance booth during the ETS. Now, at the ETS, you have to be a member of the ETS to present papers. Um, and to be a member of the ETS, you have to sign a doctrinal statement uh, with several things that I I know Nehemia Gordon would not be willing to uh, sign. For instance, see, uh, for instance, the inerrancy of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, I'm using quote marks here, and the Trinity. Um, so, uh, but you can go to the ETS, uh, you can just attend the ETS with whatever belief you might have. Just buy a ticket and go. Yep, buy a ticket and go. Um, so <clears throat> I was interested why Nehemi Gordon would be at the ETS and the SBL. Granted, he is living in San Antonio currently, so it was uh, just a drive down the road for him. Um, but <laughs> he walked into the accordance booth and uh, met my father, and that was interesting. It was a little uncomfortable, to be honest. And Nehemiah asked why he, my father keeps writing papers, why Nehemia Gordon is wrong about dot, dot, dot. Um, and uh, so my, my dad, Rob, and, uh, and Nehemia sat down and talked about the Tetragrammaton for quite a little long while. I actually have a great picture uh, <laughs> of you could see the, my dad's talking to Hemia and, and and Rob's looking on his computer. It's it's uh, quite good. Anyway, so then uh, somebody uh, I sent a picture to someone, and they said, "Oh yes, it's uh, our Sukkot's gathering." They said that Nehemia had secretly uh, accepted Yeshua as the Messiah, Messiah, and uh, but he was keeping it a secret. So Rob and I talked about about that a little bit, and uh, we decided that we would just find out if that was true or not. So uh, Rob and I saw him again. We invited him out for brunch, and uh, this much I can tell you, I don't believe that Nehemia is secretly a messianic, and I can also tell you that he received the gospel. Well, he uh, he was presented with the gospel first strongly from Rob as I was uh as I was talking on the phone uh, with my wife uh, away from the table. And then uh, I got back to the table. Rob went to the restroom, and I uh, decided that it was my turn to present 
Nehemia with the gospel as well. Um, he was uh, not receptive of it, but at the same time, uh, was very cordial and, and nice about his his stance. Um, and so we pray that the Lord will use that interaction to uh, to speak truth into Nehemia's life. Um, so yeah, that was an interesting time. The other thing that we did, and you can talk, do, is there anything else you want to add to that, Rob? No, were you going to talk about uh, chatting with Chris, or did yeah. we already cover that? We kind of already covered it. We already did, I guess. We had dinner with Chris Tilling. It was great. He uh, bounced two new book ideas off of us, uh, which was... I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for Chris, and um, just a uh, good guy, family man. Yeah. And, it, was really, uh, it was really great. I believe I just, I, you know, I, I've kind of composed some of my own morning prayers. Mm-hmm. And one of my morning prayers, and I don't have it word for word on me right now, but it, it's, I thank God for, for raising up and shaping wise scholars who, who seek to deal honestly with his word. And it's a general prayer and a, and a, and a thanksgiving because I'm thankful for those scholars that I've learned from, as well as I'm praying that God would continue to, to do that and that I would be able to benefit from those. And, uh, but it's a general. I, I don't, when I'm praying for the future, I don't know who God is going to raise up. But it seems like um, all of a sudden we've got this, got this, this Brit <laughs> crystalline on our radar and I'm so thankful for what he has published, and uh, he shared a paper that he presented at Duke University with us. Um, Called Paul and, the Trinitarian. It was great. Yeah, and and I'm just amazed and excited and, and grateful uh, to to know him and to to be able to watch and see what the Lord's going to do in the years to come with, with uh, Dr. Tilling. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so the ETS and SBL was a great place for us to get some edumacating. You're a legend in your own mind. You don't need no education. Your mom goes to college. I think that view is headed for a deep mischief. Loudmouth and the law. Last and certainly not least, before we get going here, uh, we got an email. This from John. I want to read this because I have some uh, thoughts on this. Tell me what you think, Rob. He says, uh, I've been looking more and more into the ancient Near Eastern culture, context of the Torah, for quite some time. If it's squarely in that world, I can see how Hashem was speaking directly into the the A-N-E worldview when he was instructing the ancient Hebrews in the wilderness. Hence, we find instructions for slavery, polygamy, making women as, taking women as booty after warfare, etc., these are all common A-N-E issues that need, needed instructions. So, how do we moderns, once we've sought to understand the instructions in their given context to the intended recipients, how do we then apply this A-N-E text to our own day? If we see Torah's mitzvot concerning polygamy, for example, can we simply say, well, that was applicable in their day, but not ours? Couldn't someone take the same view with food laws, for instance? If not, what defines the difference, di- different approach? I'm a one Torah guy, so I strive to understand Torah's message from original speaker from original speaker to original reci- uh, recipients, then seek to make application to our day. But I'm finding it increasingly difficult to apply a consistent hermeneutic to all mitzvot of the Torah. 
Can I insist on the continuing applicability of Sabbath and food laws while simultaneously dismissing the laws on slavery, warfare, as not applicable to our day? Well, that's fair. That's really good questions. And uh, Baruch Hashem, Yeshua gives us some basic principles. First of all, we know the greatest commandment and the one that is like it, right? So no, no question there, I'm assuming, Shema. That means everything we do is unto the Lord, first and foremost, in, in love for him with all our heart, soul, and strength. And then the expression of that in terms of our relationships, one-on-one relationships with others, needs to be uh, energized and fueled, um, however you want to put it, from that relationship we have first and foremost anchored with, with God the Father. Now, Yeshua gives us another thing, particularly in that he, he brings this up with divorce, because the the Pharisees had come to him with a sim- very similar question to what John's asking about divorce. And what is Yeshua gives us chronology as well. He says in the garden, it, from the beginning, it was not so. Man and woman, a couple. But because of the hardness of your heart, Moses has given you this other uh, legal uh, ruling. Now, what's the point there? The point there is all the, and in the three-year cycle, we're in Mishpatim this week, which is, so it's all these rules pertaining to slavery and stuff like that. We have to understand that all these laws are, are civil expressions or civil rulings that first and foremost are designed to express the nature of God and that we are to love him first and foremost and love our neighbors ourselves. And so in the case of, for example, he mentions the, the woman taken in booty. Well, it's not a, the Torah is not advocating that. But it says if you have a, a person, you have this woman, the woman has rights. It protects her. It shows her mercy. She's going to have time to mourn. But also you can never divorce her. Right? Why? Because, she's, because the Torah has mercy on her. She needs protection and she needs she needs. Uh, safety and stability and security. She's mourning uh, the loss of a complete a whole culture. So does this mean now go out and do? No, that's not that Torah is not commanding anybody to take more than one wife. It's not commanding anybody to own slaves. It does command you to keep the Shabbat. It does command you concerning diet. It does command you concerning feasts. So I think if we allow uh, Yeshua's uh, orientation that he teaches, which is the Torah of the Messiah, the Shema, love your neighbors yourself, and his his reference to the garden as as the the aim. It's a, it's easy, one man, one woman. Okay, but there's another issue here, and the fact of the matter, and we do this a lot. I do this a lot too. It's easy for us as uh, Americans and Westerners to believe that our culture rules all. It doesn't. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that, as Rob said, it doesn't ever say, oh, you need to have more than one wife or you need to have slaves or uh, anything like, like that. And when we as Americans especially think of slavery, what do we think of? We think of uh, the African-American slaves uh, that were horrifically treated and ho- a, just a horrible all around uh, thing, something that the Torah is absolutely 100 percent against. If you, absolutely. If Excellent you, point. If you, Excellent. Knock, if you knock a tooth out of your slave, guess what? Your slave goes goes free. Um, think of the the horrible horrible things that happen to the American uh, African American slaves here in the United States. This is not what Torah is talking about at all. So, 
when we think of uh, of cultural things, that's one thing. But guess what? Our culture is not the culture of everyone in the world. If you go to Africa, guess what? There are people who say that they are believers in Jesus Christ who have more than one wife. If you go to Africa, you will also, certain places in Africa, you will find uh, that there are people who do have slaves. Uh, different places in the world have, you know, there are people who have servants or slaves or whatever you want to call them, indebted servants. Uh, and there are rules for them. The Torah still applies to them today. Now, if you're going to talk about trying to take slavery back like in the United States, the Torah is absolutely against it. It always has been and always will be. But the idea that just because America doesn't do something anymore like have slaves or just because America doesn't uh, have polygamy or just because, you know, whatever it may be, and the Torah speaks to that doesn't mean that the law is not applicable today. The law is applicable in cultures that would have those things going on. So in other words, if you go to Africa and a man has two wives and he wants to, uh, he loves one more than the other and he wants to uh, throw the other one away and do nothing with her. The Torah has something to say about that. Exactly. Right. So I and I don't once again, I think that Rob's point is well taken. There are a lot of uh, uh, issues that could be brought up here. Was the Torah advocating that that having more than one wife is uh, okay? I think that there is significant reason to say no, and I think that uh, that is a good conversation that we could have. Um, you know, obviously, God and uh, and his his bride is the model for marriage uh, today and for all time. Uh, and I know that uh, people like Dr. Instone Brewer has argued that God was a polygamist because he w- was married to Israel and Judah. I strongly disagree with Instone Brewer on this fact. I think that Israel and Judah were not two separate entities, or were not. And this I've said this about two house theology too, the idea that uh, Israel and Judah were supposed to be separated. Yeah, there weren't two houses at Mount Sinai. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, but I think that there's, and you know, if we look in the apostolic scriptures, we start to see this move away from polygamy. Anyone who wanted to be any kind of a leader was not allowed to have more than one wife, uh, according to Paul, and so on and so forth. So um, there's, there's ways that we can look at the scriptures and say, is this right? That's not what the scriptures, that's not what the Torah is doing, though, when it says you're not allowed to throw, you know, put one wife out and not take care of her if you love the other one more. It's saying if this is a situation, which it still is in our, in our world today, it might not be in our culture, but it is in other parts of the world. If this is the situation, this is how you are able to – this is the law to that situation. So uh, whether or not the scripture is advocating for having – now, obviously, with slavery, it's different. Because if a if you have an, uh, a slave who is an Israelite, uh, you are supposed to uh, uh, deal with that slave differently. Is it a command to take a slave? No, obviously not. Is there still servitude and slavery going on in the world today? Yes, there is, and some of it is horrific and not what the score the, what the Torah is prescribing. We should reject it. We should speak strongly against it. We should be advocates against we that get, kind of slavery. Another example is, is the epistle to Philemon, right? Is that Onesimus was the slave, and Paul is not, he's not saying, oh, slavery's wrong, but he's trying, to, he's trying to compel and be persuasive that Philemon would receive um, Onesimus back as an equal, as a brother. Um, in, in other words, there, there are times where the social institutions are so powerful and so strong that what God's mercy expresses itself is, is in the one-to-one relationship between people that are trying to survive in that, in that 
earthly, dark environment, you know, that is hostile to God. Um, but still, he can build communities and networks of, of believers in spite of that. And that's what we see with the greatest commandments, loving God with all we are, loving our neighbors ourselves, And that's why the gospel spread in the world. Sure. Sure. Anyway, I hope that that uh, answers John's question a little bit. It might not be to your satisfaction, but that's the answer I got. <laughs> uh, Yvonne says, I know quite a few Messianics who are promoting polygamy now. A video clip on that would be very useful. Well, it depends what kind of Messianic you're talking about. Now, let's be honest. It's hard, I think, uh, if we're looking at the Scripture, there, uh, polygamy, the Bible doesn't come straight out and say, you shouldn't be a polygamist, right? At, at least, I don't think it does. Um, now, I know that uh, that there are, people, people will make arguments for passages like, a man shall leave his father and mother and become, and the two shall become one. Um, I know that that is a, a widely used verse against polygamy. But there's way more, it's such an in-depth issue. First of all, if, if uh, any Messianic is in any form of a leadership role, the scripture completely uh, speaks against them being... Um, um, a man of more than one wife. Um, Unless you reject the writings of Paul. Because there's people out there yeah. that will be messianic. They'll believe that they're, you know what I mean? And they'll say, well, Paul's just giving his opinion. So again, low view of scripture. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, in other words. There's, in, in there's, a, ton, there's, there's a ton of stuff going on here. Um, beyond that, I think I think the greatest... Uh, the greatest rejection of the the idea of polygamy is Yeshua himself. Yeshua's bride is one bride. He doesn't have more than one bride. And what happens that his bride goes and whores after other, uh, you know, uh, goes out and whores after other gods. And uh, and uh, Yeshua brings, or yod heh or however you want to say it, brings them back, uh, brings Israel back. But there's never a time where we see the model of, God is the model of what we are supposed to be as husbands, and uh, and there's never a time where we see him attempt to go. Um, Here's after, another after thing. Another, I, after, I believe after. when, you know, Paul writes about this, he says it's the mystery of, of the ecclesia, is that a husband is to love his wife the way that Messiah loves the church, loves the ecclesia. If a person who has more than one wife they can't wholly give their life over to, to a, another woman. They, it's, they're divided. Because you might have a situation where you have one of your wives needs and wants something very different than one of your other wives. You cannot, you, you're going to be a split man at that point. You're not going to be able to give yourself wholly over um, for the sake of, of uh, one wife. Because you're going to be, you're going to have torn uh, commitments. I, I know this, uh, uh, I, I am not an advocate for polygamy. I, I hope no one hears me saying that. I just think that there are a lot of moving parts within the scriptures that talk about uh, uh, this issue, uh, which is a, a difficult issue. Um, the other thing is is that uh, I love my wife very much, and I'm not. She's a wonderful, wonderful mother and a wonderful woman. She is all the woman that I can handle, and I can't imagine trying to have another. <laughs> added to that. <laughs> um, and any man who thinks that he can handle more than one, one woman is, uh, is nuts. I just, I, and look at, look at what happens to every single, uh, patriarch who has more than one wife in the Torah. It always it's con family contention. It it's, always it's, brings strife and, and bad news. Always. 
because it's not the model that God made, right? right. Um, it always brings strife and contention. Uh, of course, we have Isaac is the the man of one wife, and it seems like it just goes a whole lot better for him. Uh, so anyway. Okay, anything else before we take off? This has been fun. Oh, uh, we no. shouldn't. We should. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> we should We should mention that uh, next week, uh, I don't even want to talk about it, but I will not be around. Uh, but Rob and I will be pre-recording a show, so you'll have something new. Uh, and then also, uh, I will be gone again. I'm, I apologize. Oh, by the way, I should say to you, Rob, happy 150th show. Yeah. It's, it's not quite a milestone. It's 200, but it's it's up there. 150. We've done it. Um, I can't. That is, that is so crazy. I want to thank. I just want to take a moment and thank everybody. No, no, but seriously, thank all of you, our our listeners, our supporters, those of you who pray yeah. for us, who who maybe you're you financially supported Torah Resource, maybe you're just you send us an encouraging email, whatever it is. Yeah, we are we are so grateful to be doing what we're doing. We wouldn't be doing this if we didn't believe it was valuable. It's been bumpy three three years, um, trying to learn how to be, how to bring humor, and theological depth and 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 important critical much needed voice saying no, to to what some scholars are doing, and to try to find how the harmony works, um, especially given, uh, you know, Caleb's and my very different personalities, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and temperaments. I, I don't go off as much as I used to maybe, but but we appreciate and we're grateful for your prayers because we need them. We depend on on Yeshua guiding us, and uh, we are thankful and we want to be good, good stewards of this format. Whether there's 36 of you or 36,000, we want to be uh, good stewards honoring what Yeshua has done for us. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, 150, I, it's, that's incredible to me. Uh, I was going to say that I'm going to be gone again right before, uh, I don't even know what the date of that, I think it's the 25th, 24th, 23rd. I don't know, it's, it's that Wednesday. I'm going with uh, several friends uh, and my family. My family is going with uh, three other families. Uh, on a winter wonderland vacation up to Leavenworth for two nights, and uh, one of those one of those days is going to be we will be traveling on Wednesday to get up to Leavenworth. For those who don't know Washington State, Leavenworth is a Bavarian themed yeah. town. Not the uh, not the not the prison. Uh, uh, isn't there a Leavenworth? It's the prison house somewhere in the Midwest. But uh, this Leavenworth is full of chocolate, cheese, and wine. And, uh, and so, pork sausage, which well, you will okay. not be uh, participating yes, in. Yes, yes, exactly. Bratwurst. But you can see uh, if any of them has any haggis. No, they oh have, yes. No Scottish. There's no Scottish there uh, though. Um. Anyway. Uh. So. So <laughs> I'll be gone for that too. And and so uh, Rob and I will uh, have to pre-record another show. And I think what we're going to try to do for that, if possible, is we're going to get. Normally we do a, a Christmas Christmas special. For uh, for the Robin Caleb show right around the 25th of December, what we do is Rob and I debate whether or not uh, Christmas is a uh, pagan holiday or not. Uh, this year, we might bring Andre Philippe, one of the students at Torah Resource Institute, who did his uh, his his uh, his uh, one of his papers at this last family camp. He did it on Hislop and to Babylon's. Oh, that would be great! Yeah, we need to. 
We need to pee. And him. so it would it would be nice if we could bring him on and uh, and uh, it would be two against one in that point because I think that uh, although Rob isn't fully on board with uh, celebrating Christmas, uh, I think that he is a little bit more liberal in his understanding of the origins of Christmas than I am, and I know that uh, Andre Philippe would also be on the much more liberal side. He might be able to bring some knowledge, but he would also be a formidable opponent in this matter. So we'll talk about that, and hopefully we'll have him pre-record a show with us for that week of the 25th, where we can talk about Christmas. Okay, and let's do one more song, just because uh, it's our 150th show. That means that uh, you either love us or hate us. How rude! Yeah, 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 yeah. Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb show? Honestly, I think they're vain, stupid, and incredibly self-centered. All right, guys. Thanks so much for being with us. We hope hope that this has been a good show for everybody. Covered a lot of ground. uh, Ground that I didn't even think we were going to be covering at all. If you'd like to uh, get Rob's notes to watch his video uh, that was presented at this year's Society of Biblical Literature in the Missouri section in San Antonio, Texas. Give him an email, rvanhoff, two Fs, in vanhoff, rvanhoff at torresource.com. That's rvanhoff at torresource.com. If you'd like to email me, you can do so, cheg at torresource.com. Or leave us a comment on our comment line, 253-465-3205. We appreciate everybody who's been in the chat room giving us ideas and all that kind of good stuff. And we will pre-record something for you next week that we hope glorifies our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. 